Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello everyone and welcome to Hidden Histories. I am so sorry there's been a podcast hiatus, but we're back with some great guests for this autumn and winter. And for today's podcast, I was shown deep into the underbelly of the National Archives with the wonderful Dr. Sean Cunningham. Sean is a medieval and early modern historian and head of the medieval records at the National Archives. For this podcast, he shows me what happens when you delve into the hidden history of the National Archives and select some of his favourite pieces of our cultural history. The National Archives is open to everyone. You don't need to be a scholar or even a historian to visit, so I hope that this inspires you to take a trip yourselves. Now, don't forget to rate and subscribe, but above all, enjoy the podcast. Dr. Sean Cunningham, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you, Helen. So you are the head of medieval records here at the National Archives in Kew. That's correct. And... That job title, what does that mean? What is it? What, is, what do you do on your day-to-day? Well, it's a small team. Um, we have lots of different departments here which deal with all of the range of things that the archives does. So there's the historical records collection, there's bringing in documents from government which are being used at the minute and planning for their future. There's a lot of things around digital archiving and preserving the digital record for the future. And we have, obviously, HR and accounting. But my role is really to look after the earliest records in terms of offering advice, working on improving indexes and catalogues, maybe working with partners like universities on projects. And some of it is is funding our own bids to basically investigate these records more deeply. So we've got all of these options as a small team to go in lots of different directions, but the ultimate aim is to get more people interested in using the earlier records and what they have to offer for our history. And historians like myself, you are extraordinarily helpful to us because you show us, you, you guide us through this plethora of material that you have at your fingertips that you know so well. So today you have gathered together an incredible collection of Tudor manuscripts that we're going to go through. So that's when there's going to be actual rustling of paper because we are looking through these amazing old documents that are just, they're they're sort of tarnished and they are, you know, there's all these incredible original writing and signatures. So what are we beginning with? What's the first one we're going to look at? 
Well, I thought we'd look at generally how we get history from the records that the government, really this is the Crown's archive, so it's the history of government. In terms of what was created in the past, how, we, how do we know what happened? How do we know the people involved in the, the events that we know so well from history books? Where does that information come from? And it comes from these kind of materials, which are the letters and the warrants and the orders and the writs and the accounts and the court cases uh, that were created as government and society worked in the hundreds of years in the past. So our earliest record is the Doomsday Book, then we've got a bit of a gap. But then really from about 1200, we've got lots and lots of unbroken runs of documents right through into the Victorian period, which are often following the same system or the same pattern. And so we've got some of those out which kind of show how the end of the Wars of the Roses to the period of early in Henry VII's reign and a bit of Henry VIII, how, how government actually dealt with the political and social problems of the time. How did the crown and the king especially and his councillors know about what was going on in the country? How did they actually set their policy? How did they react to events? All those kind of things are in these documents. And the key information about the history of the country is here too. The, the problem is how do you get to it? How do you understand it? How do you in incorporate it into what you're writing or what you're thinking about writing? So because we've not really had a lot of loss other than through neglect or damage, the, the, the Second World War did some damage to some records, but fortunately the early material has survived in its hundreds of thousands of bundles and files and rolls. So in terms of a, a national archive of the medieval Tudor period, we're, we're pretty lucky that we've got an awful lot of good stuff. Possibly a tiny proportion of which is known about through letters and papers, state papers, or the, the published summary calendars of close rolls or pattern rolls that people might have heard of. Um, but that's a tiny proportion of what survives in these folders of, um, <laughs> of warrants and letters. So the first thing I've got here is a file um, from Edward IV's reign. It's around about 1482, so that's the time when he's getting to the end of his, his life. Not that he knew it, because he was still quite young, uh, but 1480-82 is the, the time when uh, he's going to invade Scotland, and he sets his brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, to lead an army into Scotland. So this file relates to that period, um, but because it's a file of signet letters, so it's letters sealed and authorised by the king's own seal from his chamber. And um, with a signet ring. Yeah. A signet ring for that was basically a uh, heavy, heavy gold ring that had a, a, a seal that had the imprint that you could just seal and press into some wax and that would be your sort of signature, so to speak. Is that correct? That's correct. So some, something would be like that. There might be a, a separate stamp sort of seal in, in handheld seal that could be pressed. But, uh, and an office was growing up around that process. So it wouldn't necessarily be the king in person, but he obviously he's, he's signed a lot of these warrants. So he's seen them. He's probably applied his own ring to some of them. And certainly he's given his authority that these are things he wants to happen. So all of these letters have kind of been under his eye and he's applied some sort of writing to them. So we've got his, his sign manual, his little signature on some of them, which basically is his way of saying... I've authorised this. So a lot of kings had a, an elaborate initial that they would draw. And you can see it on this other box that's open of Henry VII. That's his first sign manual, which is a kind of elaborate H, which is quite hard to draw. And he changed that later on so he could draw it without lifting his pen off. And, and Edward IV doing the same thing there. And this was sort of like an early signature in the way that we would sign, you know, a bank deed document today. It's very similar. and But they all have this quite... Um, elaborate, like you say, quite scroll-like way of, of, of signing, don't they? That's right. This is coming in sort of in the 15th century that the seal wasn't seen to be enough because maybe as a consequence of the civil war in the 15th century, 
uh, with different contenders for the crown, I guess, I guess authenticating your ideas and your wishes. You have the seals, but also you're signing these as personal instruments as well. So they've also got evidence of how they were folded. There's little tags of parchment through the loops and holes. There's sort of cut holes where you can see how it would have been folded back up and sealed. There's quite a tiny little document. Now these have all been flattened out by Victorian archivists and put into a file and then made to fit the shape of the covers of the file. So there's an awful lot of folding going on to get some of these big sheets of quite thick parchment folded into the space. Um, but there's hundreds of these files right through the medieval period. They've not been digitised. Some of them are summarised further down the administrative chain when these letters might turn into grants of land or licences or appointments. Um, but for a lot of these signet letters, they're, they're of a more private nature. So you're getting instructions and explanations as well as, as orders and requests. So in terms of a resource to understand how the sort of inner machine of Edward IV's council, maybe his thinking is working, these are really good because they're quite short. They're each relating to a specific piece of business. They're pretty much all in English at this date, obviously earlier on they're in French and Latin, um, but English is, is becoming the language of communication, certainly within the realm. A lot of diplomatic material will still be in Latin. But we can, we can work through this and get a really good picture of what Edward IV was doing in this 22nd year of his reign, which you can see right at the end of that letter. Um, this one is in Latin, but it's an instruction. But it's basically a record of, of his business during that year, and that would relate to lots of other documents around the kind of machinery of government. So these might instruct the exchequer to pay out some money. They might um, be authorising the making of weapons or the recruitment of soldiers, as this is a time of war, a potential war with Scotland. So I've used these to basically look at um, how the crown records can show what happened when Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III, led this army into Scotland in 1482. Because Edward basically handed over the organisation of the whole campaign to Richard, so a lot of his records from his own household, which hadn't survived, which was all run from Barnard Castle in County Durham as a staging post for the war, um, we haven't got those to see what actually happened, but the, the Crown records which reflect them um, have survived, and so we can look at these to get some sense of of what that war was like. There wasn't a lot of fighting, as quite often happens with big campaigns in Scotland, um, but they got to Edinburgh um, when Richard tried to, to get hold of um, King James III, but uh, he was taken away to Stirling, so the whole thing sort of disintegrated into a, a rather pointless raid. Um, but the evidence of all of that is here, and you know that's just one example of, a, of an event which can be rebuilt from the way the government organised its communication. So these letters are really important because they tell you how that process worked. Okay. So even, um, you know, looking at how the government was working with, you know, taking the movement of money within the inner circles of the government, etc., that actually can tell us a huge amount about the time and what was going on, what sort of money was being spent on what, which then, like you say, builds this picture of what it was like in the 15th century. That's right. And these aren't, although they are crown records, they're sweeping up information from all aspects of, of life at the time. So you're getting people who work in the royal household and in the, the rooms of the palaces referred to here. They might be getting their wages. They might be getting allowances of clothing. Um, but you also get communication with the big nobles. But also there'll be things about trading, um, especially about exports, of, and the wool trade and the wine imports. There's an awful lot you can you can use these to sort of see at a, a lower social level how 
the crown is connected but not controlling. So it's delegated that power to corporations like the City of London or the, the cities which have become counties in their own right, like, like York and Bristol. And, and how far people are travelling as well. That's right. Uh, occasionally you get sort of the equivalent of passports or licences to pass overseas, uh, especially if you're communicating with people who are potentially enemies. So Scotland's alliance with France might make that difficult at this time, but England's more closely aligned with, with Burgundy, with the Low Countries. So the politics is reflected in the business that's done, but you can also see how that evolves and changes as as time moves forward. And obviously, in this year, um, or very close to it, Edward the Fourth dies just before his fortieth birthday, um, which makes it a crisis. So, in the next set of these warrants, we're into the protectorate for Edward the Fifth and Richard the Third's uh, assumption of power. Let's say seizure of the throne. Um, that is reflected in this as well. Not as much as you'd think, because clearly it's a very fast-moving political scene. There's not a lot of time to write things down. We've got some letters which report on events in London uh, in the spring of 1483. Uh, and they're really great sources for getting a sense of the uncertainty. Um, but they're still in this kind of collection because they've come in to the Crown's archive. So that's not created by the Crown, but it's being used as part of the Crown's records uh, for some purpose, probably because they're, um, they were forfeited maybe or presented into a court as evidence in a case and then not reclaimed. So there's lots of these accidents which bring in maybe a lot of private material, but we know at the centre of it all we've got this, this crown record of it, of what it's doing and how its business works. So after the death of Edward IV, Richard III took over, <laughs> whether he was wanted or not, that's what he did. That's what he did. Um, and we all know how that ended with, um, with the Battle of Bosworth. So the next uh, document that you're going to show me, we're moving into the reign of Henry VII. Is that right? That's right, because there's um, a whole box of warrants here for issuing money. So this, everybody, looks like your sort of desk's worst nightmare. So it's just piles and piles <laughs> of sheets of paper on top of each other in this beautiful old handwriting. Um, and these, these these would have been written by scribes, by, is that, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, so these would be um, secretary? Pro- professional clerks, mm-hmm. sort of an army of clerks in the Exchequer. And is this in a secretary hand? I suppose you'd say it was in chancery hand in that okay. it looks um, like it's come from the central secretariat, so they'd all be trained to write in the same way. So it's, it's consistent, but you can still see variations in handwriting style um, within them. But yes, it's, it's written in a formal style mm-hmm. rather than anything which you'd say was personal handwriting. Which is something um, in itself when you're looking at archives, you can learn from the handwriting, can't you? Because these different styles of writing, which is completely different how we have today because we all write uniquely now. But these different styles of writing can sort of denote who it was that has actually written this document is... Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's really useful to be able to spot how things change. So we could certainly say this is different to something written 50 years later um, of a similar type because government or the, the way government works has, has evolved and the surviving records have changed as well. So at this time, you could definitely say this is, apart from obviously seeing the king's signature, but you could say this is late medieval simply because it's um, it's structured in this way. It's in, it's in readable English you know, this kind of um, of English is, is very similar to modern English, the kind of English of Shakespeare. This is obviously a century before that, mm. but it's still um, it's still very legible. And in this particular set of letters are in not very bad condition either. Some of them are, have been supported by conservation work on the back. 
sort of reminds me of when you're at school and you're told to make something look old and you yeah. pour it in tea. And it yeah, really does. <laughs> yeah, it does look a bit like that. Some of them you can tell have been at the bottom of, um, of chests for many centuries yes. and have kind of frayed at the edges and have been sort of foxed and they've got marbling on them from water damage. So the history of these records, as I said before, is is good because they've not been willfully destroyed by war or invasion, mm-hmm. um, but actually they have been for a lot of their lives um, kept in conditions we wouldn't tolerate today. So in cellars, in um, some of them were above the, the fish tanks in the King's Palaces or near the kitchens of Westminster <laughs> Palace. So they, when they created the archives as the public record office, as it was known in the 1850s, they brought records from over 80 places into one central point. So there was no control over how things were looked after, which accounts for some of these rather dark and, and damaged ones in the file. But they've done a good job at preserving the ones you know, that have been on the verge of collapse. They've backed them with thicker paper, and so you can um, you can use what would have been quite a fragile document now quite easily. So what does this box of goodies tell us about Henry VII? It's, it's really fascinating because it is normally... Um, a thing where Henry is, is seen as someone who likes his cash. He likes to feel comfortable in having money. It's his money as a route to controlling people and power. And certainly later on in his reign, you can see a lot more of that politics and finance linked closely together, basically to keep people suppressed. And that's related to his own illness and the tragedies of losing his wife and his Prince of Wales mm-hmm. um, in, within 18 months of each other. So you can understand why he would want to clamp down on the way government worked. At the start of the reign, it's much more open-handed, I think, and these records really helped to spot that. He comes to the throne with empty coffers. He literally comes down from Leicester with no shirts. One of the first things he does is order a load of clothes from London tailors. Oh, really? So you've got the yeah. documentary evidence to see so, that he just orders lots of clothes. He, he says, I'm king. <laughs> Twelve new linen shirts. Wow. He's got delivered by the 30th of August, 1485. It's even before he gets to London. And you can see, partly because of the way he conspired to become king, he's been disrupting Richard III's communications and the way his money can be generated, a lot of it through the way sheriffs work. But obviously he then has to reap the consequences of that because now he's king, he's inherited a system where there's no money at the centre. So a lot of this is to do with raising money. There's quite a lot of loans from London merchants who are keeping government going basically for the first three months he's sorting out the political problems of who to trust and who to not trust some people are in prison some people he would want to be running bits of the country he doesn't really know if they're going to be loyal or not so these records because they're about paying out money really give you that sense of how offering cash here and there rewarding somebody appointing people on on good wages buying things making yourself look magnificent so a lot of this is about buying uh, redeeming some of the crown jewels that Richard III had pawned to the London merchants. Some of this is about buying the best clothes he could find. So he's ordering lots of fine gowns, lots of purple, lots of cloth of gold. He's really, he wants to make himself look like a king, even though at that moment, a lot of people don't think he's got a right to be king. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a big part of his sort of personal propaganda in that he hasn't got this sort of linear, legitimate line of succession and he so he, he's sort of coming and people must have been a bit confused about his his genuine um suitability as king is is that right yeah i think people didn't know who he was obviously his mother margaret beaufort and her husband thomas lord stanley had been in england during richard the third's reign 
and had been masterminding this plot to try and draw support from Richard towards Henry's claim, um, mainly because of opposition to Richard initially, rather than support for Henry, he becomes a figurehead for people who want to recover the things that Richard has deprived them of. So when Richard takes the throne, he displaces a lot of the Yorkist household, Edward the Fourth and Edward V's supporters, who suddenly have no route to the power they thought they were going to have if Edward V had carried on reigning as a teenage king. So Henry benefits from those people coming over to Brittany and France. They form a kind of court in exile, and he brings them all back again. Um, but it does mean that he's king because of his victory on the battlefield. Richard III has issued lots of very damning propaganda in 1484 about Henry's untrustworthiness, how he's going to sell the country to foreigners, how he has no claim and no right. Um, and really, I think a lot of the population would have at least remembered that. So Henry has to begin to counter it all by presenting himself as not only someone who is king, but has who has a right to be king and portrays himself as a king. So he, he does a lot of showing himself off quite early on in London, and he's off on the road in the spring of 1486 to basically have a tour of the country so people can see him. And of course, that's when you start to see the rebellions coming out um, to try and depose him straight away. But a lot of that is, is captured in these records because we often say here, if you want to find anything out, just follow the money trail. Because certainly in the earlier period, we don't have a lot of the personal communication letters, um, but we've got a lot of accounts which tell you how people were spending their money and buy. Which says a lot about a person, really. Yeah. I mean, if you printed off your bank account, bank statements, I know if I would, people would be probably shocked at the amount of money I spend on fashion. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, but you do you do learn a lot about a person and, you know, the things that they like, the things that they seem yeah. to be important. And I think I think it's, it is just an incredible source to be able to look through these records and actually see that with somebody who is, you know, the, the head of a country, who's a monarch. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, to think about all of that responsibility in such a small group of people who are running the country. And, and Henry VII comes in with a, a group of warriors and they stay with him all the way through the reign till they begin to die off. So he doesn't really move beyond that core group of allies who'd fought with him, had been with him in exile. He really trusts them. They kind of are bought into this whole enterprise of recovering their power, but keeping him in power. So it does mean that you kind of see this as a, a very personal approach to ruling. And it, it is to to pass the crown on, to maintain this family in power, um, which is what obviously had happened earlier in the 15th century, and he wants to stop that dispute for the crown recurring. So when he begins to see these pretenders like Lambert Simnel, Perkin Warbeck, and the claims of um, the Yorkist nephews of Edward IV and Richard III, like the Delapool family, who become claimants after 1502, really, um, that's the sort of thing he's dealing with all the way through. Um, and these records, they're great because they really connect you to that thought process and they let you see the priorities coming and going and where the money goes. So later on in this kind of material, you know, one, one grant could be the, the wages of a yeoman of the crown for, for guarding the doors in the palace, you know, three shillings a month or something like that. And the next payment could be a loan of £80,000 to Archduke Maximilian to, to keep those rebels on the right side of the channel. Um, Business just was dealt with as it came up, um, and that kind of jumble of concerns is present in these records. You know, you can't really classify them into foreign policy or domestic policy or state finance. It's all it's all just dealt with as it arises. So yeah, that's definitely true. And I definitely I found that when I've been going through um, archive material, you you like you say there is this sort of one huge um, issue that's being dealt with, and the next one might be you know 
the land that's owed to X because of a marriage or something. It's, it is really interesting that it's everything is put together and there is no seeming sort of priority list, so right. to speak. Kings have to know all these things. And yeah. Edward IV was notoriously good at remembering who was married to whom, where their lands were, <laughs> what their children's names were, um, because that's how you dealt with people in the court. And behind all of this is a whole range of petitioning, lobbying, nagging, um, people who are cousins by marriage of, of the cousins of the royal family, wanting things, wanting their relatives put into posts. So there's, there's all sorts of things being juggled around in the background as well as the sort of national policy to be decided on, whether we have to raise a tax, can we really invade France this year? Um, why is the, uh, the Venetian galleys not delivered all the silks to Southampton yet? You know, all these kind of questions which would have concerned the elite, um, but the king is also looking right down the social scale to make sure he's not sort of, he's not fueling rebellion yeah. and not discontenting people. So anything which is to do with tax. Henry VII wasn't very good at um, managing his tax programme. At least at least two big tax rebellions emerged in his reign from asking for the wrong money at the wrong time. Um, so the financial records are great because they, they show you the intention and the reaction and how everything is sort of mixed up at the same time. Okay, and what about um, the next king down the line, Henry VIII? What do we have on him here? Well, we, again, we've gone for something which is slightly different. So Henry is um, the beneficiary, let's say, of his father's good kingship, in that he didn't get deposed, <laughs> and he did have a lot of money at the end of the way. So what we've got here are two large books, which are basically um, like a declaration or a state of the treasury. So it's how much money have we got in the exchequer to spend on things. And it's interesting in that we talked about the Civil War before um, in the 15th century and how the difficulty of, um, of managing the money really dictates what kind of policies people can follow. So here we've got two books. One is at the end of Henry VII's reign and one is at the start of Henry VIII's. Are these both, so this, is, this one is on vellum, which is uh, this cow skin. Yeah, that's the cover. It's really thick parchment. This one's been rebound, okay. but they're written on um, on nice paper and they're oh, in pristine condition. Wow, it's amazing to think that these are as old as they are because yeah. they are still they really are in immaculate condition. So these are unusual in that they're from the Exchequer, and by the end of Henry the Seventh reign, a lot of the money was going through the chamber, which is a part of the royal household which was essentially the king's private space, but again, that had evolved into an office. And we've also got another book to look at, which is the, the records of the treasurer of the chamber, which show how the chamber had taken over a lot of the functions of the exchequer, so that the, the money in and out basically being accounted. And what these books are, are all the sort of leftovers for payments coming in and out, which are drawn on the exchequer. So it's how much money have we got to pay people's wages or to offer gifts and rewards? Or also, who's forfeited some money for being a criminal? Can we use that fine to pay for somebody else's wages? So you get a sense of how everything links together and how opportunistic and precarious some of this money flow really is. You know, the kings are not quite living on the edge, but in their own right, you know, they've got to live off their crown lands, they've got to live off the customs, import taxes and export taxes. 
Um, there's certain things they, they can only really ask for in emergencies, and that's usually taxes through Parliament, mainly for national defence against the French or the Scots. So they've got to make their own income generation more efficient. And these records really tell you how that happened. And effectively, the story of why Henry VIII was able to invade France 1512, 1513 comes from these materials because it tells you how much money Henry VII left him and it begins to tell you how he started to spend it on the military build-up um, as he saw it to, to become that glorious king like Henry V or Edward III. He really wants to, to make his mark as an 18-year-old superboy um, to sort of launch himself onto the European stage. And you can only really think about that because of the, the financial backing that's in place and what his father had, had done, not only to pass the crown on unopposed, but also to leave him with a chest of cash. So these books tell you a lot about, um, you know, individual kings' political aspirations and, you know, why their intentions for invasion um, or domestic policy. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's the case, isn't it? You, um, you have the record of what happened. Mm. You don't often have evidence of the thinking behind it. Yeah. So a lot of these tell you about why things are being done, not just the fact that they were being done. So you can get a little bit more into the heads of the people in the council chamber discussing policy with the monarch. How do, the, how do you get to the king's ear? How do you get your message across? Maybe to get that beneficial grant that's going to help you, but also how can you contribute your part to um, a great enterprise like this? Because that's equally going to bring you reward if you said the right thing made the right thing happen, changed the king's mind, and that turns out to be a very good thing, mm. um, you're going to benefit down the line. So these kind of records, they're difficult because they're, although they're beautifully written on clear paper, they're all in Latin because they're written by the under-treasurer. The one for Henry VII's reign has got some amazing little illustrations of dragons guarding treasure. Yeah, it's amazing. Illuminated capitals and lots of leaf work wow. and scrolling. Yeah. It's um, almost like you can, it's almost like you can imagine them just sort of sat there going... <sighs> like you know, you were sort of in a <laughs> definitely. Someone spent a lot of time, yeah, sort of shading in and cross hatching. Yes, exactly. And I sort of wonder whether story. it was a very long meeting. And they sort of <laughs> <laughs> there were certainly lots of dragons crawling out yeah. of trees, and yeah. um, occasionally you get sort of bowls of lilies and Prince of Wales, Fleur de Lis, that kind of thing, um, and ostrich feathers. That's, oh, wow. that's a nice yeah, dragon. That's a beautiful dragon. Or a wyvern, isn't it? It's got two legs. Well, whoever um, put these together is also a fantastic artist. In Henry VIII's reign, they've left blanks for the pictures, but they've never had time to fill them in. Um, Although that's a nice one at the start, the sort of king on his throne. He has a young king as well, a young image. That's lovely. So that one has been done, but there's quite mm. a few gaps. With Henry VIII, we tend to look at the state papers, yeah. the things that have been published for a long time, because that is correspondence. And it's, again, it's direct thoughts written on paper. And we tend to leave this kind of stuff behind, sort of more medieval mm. collections, because in the medieval period, we don't have those letters to the same yeah. extent, pastor letters. So, exactly. So, letters. when you, you get letters in the Tudor period, you get really excited because it's like, you know, this is this is quite novel. But whereas, like you say, these sorts of um, more traditional documents often get disrepute. Yeah, and I think, you know, the content hasn't really changed. And if you think about how we've and how you are, you know, with your work, how you're rebuilding someone's biography from mm, yes. this kind of source. Yeah. We can bring some of that into the 16th century um, mm. period and, and we suddenly have a new set of evidence, new dimension to think mm. about how the crown and people and people and their communities all work together or how they didn't work together, how they sort of rubbed against each other. 
Um, there's certainly still a lot of problems about taxation and a lot of problems about social control, which come up through these records. But uh, so seeing this period as not being bounded by 1485 as a political sort of frontier, I think we've got to look at the, the Reformation and the, the yes. dissolution period as the end of the medieval world as far as people living then would yes. have thought. So in that sense, these records have that role to play still in the way we talk about the, um, the early 16th century because the, the money trail still has to be followed, the courts are still doing their thing, um, the king is still a Catholic, even though he's the head of a Catholic church of England yeah. by you know, the, um, the mid-1530s. So this is still um, a kind of frontier that can be explored, let's say, by a bit more digging around. And obviously what we've got to try and do is find a way to get this material more accessible, because obviously not everyone can come down to queue to um, to spend two weeks digging through this kind of thing to pick out the nuggets that are there, um, so some of it will be going online. We've done some work to, um, like the, the Tudor Chamber Books project that I've been doing with Winchester and Sheffield Universities to put the the, the, the books of the Treasure of the Chamber up online, so everyone everyone can go to um, TudorChamberBooks.org and look for the the daily payments of the court of um, Henry VII and Henry VIII up to about 1522. Which as a historian is such a useful source because like you say, not everybody can easily get down to queue. So it is really helpful to be able to have a look at these documents you know, on on digital format. That's right. I mean, there's the, the difficulties of you know, how you, you learn to read them. Um, although these are nice and clear, they're still in 16th century, yes. <laughs> late medieval Latin. Yeah. Um, the English would be exactly the same if they were in English. Yeah. But um, you obviously have to be able to spot what you're looking for, names or places. Yeah. There's an awful lot of um, Roman numerals for sums of money there, and some strange symbols for halves of pennies and quarters of pennies. So this is um, this is this is two things really. There's a a register of some bonds, which are the instrument to sort of make people on agreements. But it's also the notebook of uh, an official called the King's Remembrancer, who was partly responsible for these records, remembering the King's business so they can be part of the archive and be referred to, especially to protect the King's income or to look after people who are defaulting or maybe try to embezzle money out of the crown. So the idea that you've got um, official records and private records doesn't really exist mm. at this time. If you've got a, a, a role or a job, you're kind of living that job all the time and you would take your papers home, you would do business in inns and taverns, you'd meet people on the river when you were travelling up and down. Um, you wouldn't just have an office where you did all of your work. So it's very fluid how papers and documents are moving yeah. around. And this is an example of, of that kind of thing. It's, it's a, a scrappy notebook, it's been crossed out, it's been written in good bits, there's yeah. amendments and annotations. Um, it kind of shows you how... People had jotting books where they yeah. just almost like daily diaries. They'd write down things as they were thinking about them. They'd write notes and memoranda and things to do, to-do lists almost. Um, and it gives you a sense of someone living their role. Mm. And this gets you closer to the names in these are the documents who you might see passing through a, an instruction or an order. Um, were very. These are very rare where you actually see how somebody then took that order, popped it into their daily business and recorded it amongst everything else they were doing. So when these books survive, it really does give you an insight into um, the idea that working for the Crown, whether it's in the county as a, 
as a sheriff or a, an under sheriff or at Westminster in an office, you know, in the Exchequer in Westminster Palace. Everybody had their own lives, um, which were very hard to sort of separate from the thing that earned their bread, which was... Well, the photos been removed here, haven't they? Yeah, there's a few little slices, but that might just be the sort of gathering oh. to keep them together. So these are great little things. Um, and there's a couple more of these um, which we've spotted, but again, totally, uh, totally accidental how these things have survived. But where they do survive, they just give you a little bit more of an insight into how hard it was to keep things going because a lot of these people didn't really have um, deputies who you might consider as competent. Mm. I mean, a lot of grants where um, you were, say, appointed to be the steward of a castle or to look after the leopards and lions in the Tower of London, you might not, <laughs> Which be, there were. <laughs> might not be expected to do that in, per or in person and you would be um, allowed to appoint a deputy yeah. and pay their wages from your wages. But for things like this where you're appointed for your skill as a lawyer or as a, an administrator, you're expected to do the job yourself. Mm. And you know, from this, some of the, um, the idea that you know, the Cecil papers at Hadfield House were taken away by, um, by, uh, by the Cecils okay. in Elizabeth's first reign because they were working on those documents, um, even though they were the Crown's records. So that's why there's a collection of state papers up there rather than in the state papers here because the idea of private and personal yeah. and official records didn't really didn't really work for them. Gosh, they've sort of done like a little sort of grid format here, haven't they? It's yeah. almost like little columns of... I guess a lot of these, um, when you see accounts with lines down them, it means they've, they've processed right. them or it's been audited. It's like ticking off your to-do list, Discharged. isn't it? This is, this, yeah. this is sort of like a personal to-do list. Exactly. So this will probably be sort of scaled up the process into, into some different books as these things have been either paid off or worked mm. through. Um, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, you have to spend weeks going through and correlating with some other things to see how the, the process moved forward. But that's the kind of um, opportunity that's there if you can get into the records. Um, you, you can do this kind of thing. Mm. It's just, you know, it takes a lot of effort. What's your favourite part of your job? Um, well... It's, it's a great job because I do get the chance to do exploring like this, just looking through the records. A lot of what we're doing now is to try and develop a public programme which is really bringing this kind of material to the surface, so the stories in the records, not just the history of government, which you, know, you have to know what's going on in the past to be able to hunt things down. But when you find something which reveals a strange case like the mole catcher who tries to poison Henry VI with an amazing <laughs> poison, which he's shown how to make in 1438, or Eleanor Cobham's trial for witchcraft yes. you know, in the legal records. But when you read what she was alleged to have done, it's just a fantastic story of you know, painted thrones and symbolic dances and all kinds of strange things. So finding things like that is great. The ability to explore. I really like talking about history with people who are doing research because mm. quite often they'll come in um, and not not well they know where to start they know what they're looking for it might be a subject but they've sometimes got no yeah. real understanding of how to connect it to a collection yeah, yeah how to exactly. find what I want in that mass mm. of, of records about government definitely in our conversations I've sort of worked things out and I'm like oh well, that makes sense and that weaves into that <laughs> I mean the good thing is it doesn't change from our point of view, the way government worked in the past has, has been steady and static and it evolved slowly. These great institutions were not meant to be 
experimented upon. So the Exchequer does its thing in 1800 pretty much the same as it did in 1400. Mm. It's just the country's changed a bit more around it and different things have grown up. Um, it's the same in the medieval period. You'll get experimentation, which Henry VII does do with his chamber finance, which I think you know starts in the Yorkist period and he picks up on it and that's where the records survive from his reign. And that kind of is slowly eroded again during the 16th century because things revert back to the traditional ways. So you can work out those processes and then you can begin to sort of know exactly where you're going to find what you want. Mm. But all that takes time. But we're here as a small team at the archives mm. to answer people's questions, mm. do get in touch and yeah. come down and see this material. I was going to say, like, how can people come? How can people come and look at things? So you, what people don't seem to understand, and why um, I think this podcast was really important, is that you can actually come and look at these amazing documents. You have the right to do that. Um, exactly. Everybody does. So how do people begin? Well, you can go to the website, nationalarchives.gov.uk, which has got an awful lot of information about the things we hold and how you get to see them and events and activities and our responsibilities. But because we've got things from 1086 Doomsday Book right up to digital diaries of ministers in the 1990s, there's an immense amount of material. The catalogue says sort of 30 million entries but if you think yeah. of these individual warrants being filed as one document but yeah. there's 200 documents in there Within it, yeah. so there might be 300 million documents so the history of the country is here and in the British Library and there's still a lot to discover there's loads to discover and you can come down with your proof of identity and proof of address get a, a reader's ticket and within half an hour you can be sitting looking at, at anything you can be looking at. You could be looking at the Doomsday Book. Or you can be looking at Henry V <laughs> muster rolls for Agincourt, yeah. or you yeah. could be looking at um, you know taxation records with your ancestors in a Northamptonshire village in 1600. If you know what you're looking for and where to find it, and that's what we're here to do to help you find what you want and to connect up those stories that might be family stories or stories around place and people in places, because that's really what the Crown has been worried about over time: is income from land the country itself being a resource for sustaining the, the nation. So the records about place are really what we have and then the people on those places and how they all interact over the centuries. And it makes an amazing kind of dense web of connection. And you can see that um, even by looking at a few of these records, you get that sense of how everyone then was connected and how we're connected to them. Uh, and it is really, it's, it's our story in paper form, basically. Well, you heard it from the horse's mouth. The history of our country lies at the National Archives. So do come down and just sign up for a reader's pass and you have all of that history at your fingertips. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming on the podcast. I thought that that was absolutely fascinating. And we're going to go and dive into some bits from the 14th century now. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 